You're listening to the Diplomats podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, a senior editor at The Diplomat, coming to you from New York City. And today I'm very happy to be joined again by Shannon Tiazzi, The Diplomat's editor-in-chief. Thanks for joining me, Shannon. How are you doing today? Good. How are you, Ankit? Doing very well. Uh, And Shannon, I'm really glad to have you on this episode because we are... Um, In this month and the upcoming month, we are hitting the two five-year anniversaries associated with the start of, respectively, China's Belt and China's Road. Uh, We can trace those back to speeches delivered in late 2013 by Chinese President Xi Jinping, first in Kazakhstan, where he announced the Silk Road Economic Belt, and then a little bit later in Indonesia when he announced the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road. And together, those two initiatives came to be known as the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, earlier the One Belt, One Road Initiative, um, but officially now the BRI. And there's a lot of hubbub around this uh, and a lot of myths around this initiative. Uh, A lot of headlines describe it as sort of, you know, China's trillion dollar initiative to reshape the world and the most significant public strategic spending campaign since the Marshall Plan. Um, We can sort of interrogate some of these issues, but today I really want to take stock with you of where the BRI has come five years later. Um, And we've already been doing a lot of uh, analysis on this at The Diplomat. Uh, And I plugged this on the last podcast, but I'll drop this again for listeners. Uh, The issue of our e-magazine this year, um, this month, leads with an excellent cover article by Nandez Roland looking specifically at the issue of the BRI in Europe. The BRI is definitely becoming... Uh, or has been for a couple years now, much greater than just an Asian initiative. Um, It is truly global in scope, uh, and she takes a look at the BRI in Europe. And Shannon, as I understand it, you're working on an article for the magazine next month on the issue of the BRI's growing pains more broadly. Is that right? Yeah, so uh, I'm sure our readers are familiar. Um, There have been a ton of headlines in recent months about various countries, um, Malaysia, Pakistan, Myanmar, all kind of rethinking or reconfiguring their approach to BRI projects. Um, So I'll just be kind of taking stock of where the BRI is today and how China is coping with these challenges. And, you know, that'll probably factor into our discussion here as well. So listeners can get a nice preview. Right, right. So obviously the BRI is a big deal in Chinese foreign policy. It's been enshrined in the Communist Party Charter. Um, it's been included in the PRC's constitution. All of the uh, both those developments happened over the last year, uh, beginning at the 19th Party Congress. Uh, it is really Xi Jinping's signature initiative. Um, and it sort of is in many ways a culmination of the sort of going out strategy that China long in- encouraged its sort of state-owned enterprises to pursue. And more broadly, if you look at the issue of economic overcapacity within China, it does make sense for a lot of these bloated state-owned enterprises to take some of this ener- uh, energy and and take it abroad in pursuit of China's broader geostrategic goals. Um, you know, maybe we can start a bit with some of the myths around BRI and just uh, talk a bit about that. So one of the questions I have, you know, uh, I always get into debates about this with people. It's sort of one of my pet peeves is when the BRI is described <laughs> as a trillion dollar project, right? So the actual outlays that China spends are considerably, considerably smaller from what I see, right? Um, right. So if you look at the Ministry of Commerce data between uh, 2015 and 2016, it's just, uh, on, you know, around tens of billions, maybe 30, 40 billion dollars that that China ends up actually putting on the line, despite the grand announcements. And that's been long coming in Chinese foreign policy, even under Hu Jintao, you know, uh, he would travel to many countries and deliver all kinds of grants, but only a small percentage of that would actually 
end up showing up. And while that's changed a little bit under BRI, it's still nowhere near some of the numbers that we see in the headlines. Um, but what do you, uh, so, you know, uh, Shannon, do you want to just take a minute to kind of maybe tell us, you know, I mean, this very simple, but deceptively simple question of just what is the BRI um, is often very difficult to answer because there's no authoritative map or list of projects or list of countries. I mean, China has done a list of countries, but uh, some of those you wonder how those countries ended up on the list. Uh, other countries are potentially missing. So, you know, this is a hard question for you, but uh, in your view, you know, what is the BRI? How big is it? Where is it? What's going on? So I think the BRI has sort of grown um, exponentially since it was first announced. Uh, if you look at when Xi Jinping first announced uh, the Silk Road Economic Belt and the 21st Century Maritime Silk Road, what he's really talking about is reviving the ancient Silk Road, um, which is itself a more concept, uh, a concept that's more complex than, you know, one path that all of the traders back in, you know, 2000 years ago followed. Um, and there's a lot of great work done on the historical Silk Road that I won't get into. But it's a, it's a more specific concept. Um, he's talking about increasing infrastructure connectivity, as well as financial connectivity, um, cyber connectivity, all of these different branches, but it's limited to Asia and uh, Eurasia. So essentially reconstituting these ancient links between East Asia and Europe. Um, and that's why we had uh, Nadej Roland to do that excellent piece for us in the magazine, because Europe was originally conceived of as the end point uh, for the Belt and Road, its end destination. The problem is that partially by design and partially because of the enthusiasm of Chinese local companies who are trying to get a share of the funding, almost every foreign policy and uh, even foreign investment initiative that China undertakes is being lumped into the Belt and Road. Um, so we've seen the Belt and Road expand to the Arctic, for example, um, the Polar Road, as it's called. We've also seen it be expanded to Africa, which makes sense within the concept of the ancient Silk Road, but only for the East Coast. But you also have China talking about, you know, Western Africa in the context of the Belt and Road. Um, you even have the Belt and Road being talked about in Latin America, South America, which makes absolutely no sense in terms of the way that she originally was conceiving of it. So at the moment, the Belt and Road has really just become a shorthand for Chinese foreign policy in general. Um, almost every concept is being framed in that way. And there's an excellent report that came out recently from the Center from, of Strategic, Strategic and International Studies, excuse me, CSIS, um, that talks about how this came about. And part of the reason is that domestic Chinese companies are scrambling to get funding. The easiest way to get funding for your projects overseas right now is to claim that they're part of the Belt and Road. Um, so there are uh, tons of projects and tons of money, and again, this is where the how much is the Belt and Road worth question comes in, is being labeled under Belt and Road, but funneled into countries that, as far as we can tell, based on what specific pronouncements we have, are not actually along the Belt and Road. Uh, so, yeah, the question of how you define it is really central, um, but also, I think, purposefully left vague because Beijing itself is always 
tweaking uh, what it means, and it wants to keep the flexibility to be able to do that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, it's an exercise really left to the reader in this case. Um, and, you know, it, in a way, uh, these kinds of big ideas and brands are very helpful in casting a country as a more strategic actor on the world stage, right? Uh, we saw that during the Cold War with various um, U.S. initiatives, for instance. Um, and now I think with the Belt and Road, it's very much also the case that um, everything that China does is sort of seen through the Belt and Road lens. Um, and depending on your vantage point, uh, the BRI is starting to be seen as really a tool of Chinese geopolitical influence seeking. And I think that's a little bit unfortunate because, um, you know, as we know, there's a, in Asia at least, there is a huge deficit of financing for uh, infrastructure. And a lot of countries are very hungry for really cheap, no strings attached sources of financing to improve roads, highways, power provisions. Uh, I think this was maybe a good example, you know, driving some of the thinking behind the Pakistan Economic Corridor, despite some of the geopolitical linkages there. Um, but what's really happened is that, um, I don't know, and you can correct me if you disagree with this, but a lot of what China does is, is starting to instinctively be seen as a little bit more nefarious or sort of self-serving when, in fact, a lot of countries do need these sources of financing. And, of course, the, uh, the concerns that Western countries uh, and even Japan, uh, I think a good case here is maybe the launch of the AIIB, uh, was, you know, oh, these Chinese-led institutions or financing projects are not going to have the kind of standards that we want to en encourage, um, environmental standards, labor standards, what have you. Um, but really, you know, there is this deficit, and not necessarily everything that China does under the aegis of the Belt and Road is, you know, in the, in the, in the interest of serving broader Chinese strategic interests. But obviously a lot of it is, and I think making those distinctions isn't always the easiest um so you know if we did want to break things down a little because i don't think it's helpful to really generalize about the belt and road um and you know you're writing about this right now so you probably have a lot to say about this shannon what are some of the projects that are more in your mind the strategically minded belt and road projects or or, or countries more broadly i think pakistan is clearly a big one there um but what are some of the other ones that you've noticed yeah i think pakistan is probably at the top of the list um, because obviously Pakistan and China have an incredibly close relationship, uh, famously call each other Iron Brothers. And there's really this perception that if the Belt and Road cannot succeed in Pakistan, it can't succeed anywhere, right? You have the political conditions, um, the receptiveness of the government in Pakistan is probably going to be the best of any government that China will be working with around the world. And as you mentioned, strategically, this is a very important for China because it allows an alternative uh, transportation option that would bypass some of the choke points in um, eastern and southeastern Asia, uh, specifically the Malacca Strait comes to mind. So in that sense, the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor is really the linchpin for the Belt and Road. Um, and even there, although the Pakistani government has reiterated numerous times its absolute commitment to this project, you have concerns. Um, a lot of independent analysts and some politicians even are constantly talking about how can we afford this? Um, what is this going to do to our debt levels? And what do those debt levels do to our national security? And again and again, you see politicians, not just in Pakistan, but you know, in the Philippines, in Myanmar, talking about the example of Sri Lanka. Um, and Sri Lanka having to sign over a port to China on a 99-year lease because it was unable to pay back the loans it had taken out um, for China to build the project. 
So I think a lot of times you hear people talking about the Belt and Road with strategic concerns, but in terms of local governments starting to rethink it, um, it's the debt that's the most fundamental issue. And obviously the debt has strategic implications, but first and foremost, they're worried about causing an economic crisis in their own countries because they will be taking out too much money and they won't be able to afford to pay it back. Um, but as you noted, a lot of these countries desperately need funding. And China is the only country in a lot of cases that's willing to provide them a lot of money. You know, I don't see any other countries offering billions of dollars in funding to Pakistan. And so a lot of these Belt and Road countries are kind of in a catch-22. You know, they would love to have high standard, low interest loans, but because they are high risk investment destinations, those aren't being offered to them. So their choices are really no funding or risky Chinese funding. Um, mm. And, you know, it's easy to see why governments are taking the risky Chinese funding over nothing. That's right. And, you know, in the case of Pakistan, also in recent weeks um, after Imran Khan's government took office, you know, we've seen the issue of Belt and Road funding become a strategic issue between the United States and China. Right. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo specifically said that if Pakistan does deal with its current account deficit by approaching the IMF for a bailout, the U.S. would oppose it unless it received assurances that none of that money would go towards paying Chinese creditors. Uh, so that's quite interesting to me, too. And I think we're going to see more of that, especially as the United States looks to compete. Um, obviously, though, you know, it, there is an issue of scale here. I mean, as you noted, China is talking billions with a B and the United States, India, um, Japan, probably less so. Japan actually sort of wrote the book on strategic uh, loans um, over the course of the Cold War and uh, even later. So I think Japan's a little bit of a different case, but I think uh, India and the United States are trying to sort of play the Belt and Road game or at least counter it. Um, but, you know, it's just a matter of having the numbers to really back up what you're saying. And that's a very difficult problem uh, for either side to really get over. Um, but, you know, I wanted to talk a bit about this uh, fascinating graphic that actually came across, Shannon, uh, from the Center for Global Development in a recent report about the BRI. And they actually ended up plotting something that I'd been looking for uh, for a while. I can, I can include a link to this in the podcast notes if um, listeners want to take a look for themselves, since it's not always the best to describe a graphic. Um, but basically, uh, you know, this chart shows on the x-axis... Uh, so first of all, it, it plots a range of countries that are participating in the BRI and its associated projects. On the x-axis, you have the public and publicly guaranteed debt as a percentage of GDP of these countries, right? So the further along the x-axis to the right a country is, the more indebted it is to external sources. Um, and then on the y-axis, uh, the analysts have effectively plotted the percentage of that debt that is specifically to China. So basically any country in the top right corner is incredibly risky, both in terms of having a lot of external debt and in terms of a high percentage of that external debt being specifically to China. So this is, you know, it tells an interesting story because like Sri Lanka, which often comes up in these Belt and Road conversations, is considerably low risk in the sense that a small percentage of its public debt is to China, right? So in the, in the future, if the Sri Lankans do have to refinance, um, with the Chinese, um, there are potentially ways out for them. But the further up you get there into that top right corner, you start to see um, some very interesting countries that we don't always talk about in the context of the BRI, but maybe we have been more recently. So, you know, Mongolia is in there, the Maldives, Laos, Kyrgyzstan. Pakistan is in there. They're making a big jump towards that top right as a result 
of the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor and associated projects. But way up in the top right corner is Djibouti, which I find to be a really interesting case here, particularly because it is the site of China's only overseas military base. Um, so, Shannon, if you don't mind like switching gears a little bit, um, what do you think is really going on right now between China and Djibouti in the context of the BRI? I know this is something you've written about in the past, um, but I'd love your thoughts on, on where things are going between Djibouti and China. Uh, Djibouti is one of those cases where you have a government that has very high ambitions. Um, they want to essentially boost their economy to be something that is more industrialized and more self-sufficient and not just rely entirely on their geographical location um, to entice foreign countries to be interested in them. And yet at the same time, they're having a hard time selling this vision abroad, um, partially because of governance issues and partially because of the risk factor of being located on the Horn of Africa. You know, there, there's a reason a lot of countries have military bases there, right? Um, so again, you're seeing China being one of the few options and it's being very enthusiastically welcomed by the government. And that's part of the reason why China was able to establish its first overseas military base in Djibouti. Um, you know, another part, it obviously helps that a lot of other countries have military bases there as well. So for both China and the host government, it's a lot easier of a sell because there's a longstanding tradition of offering soil for this purpose to a foreign government. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting that we tend to kind of overlook the economic aspects of China-Djibouti cooperation. There's an overemphasis on the security component because of this military base. Uh, as you mentioned, you don't really hear Djibouti talked about in the Belt and Road context very much. Aside from the military base, um, you don't hear people talking about the fact that China is investing in a massive new port in Djibouti, uh, the same way it is in other countries like Sri Lanka, um, Myanmar, <clears throat> Malaysia, all of these countries where you've seen a ton of press about these projects. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's right. Um, and so, you know, going back to the issue of just general participants in the Belt and Road countries, you know, we've talked a bit about um, Europe. I did want to ask you just more broadly to just open it up and talk a little bit more about Africa, because we just saw the 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 Forum on China-Africa Cooperation, uh, the 2018 iteration of that um, a summit meeting just wrap up. Um, broadly speaking, when you look at the African continent, um, uh, the way I understand it is that, you know, African countries have sort of seen the experience of countries like Sri Lanka with the Hamantota Port uh, Initiative, and, and more broadly, there have been issues with Chinese investment more broadly coming into these countries. Um, what are what are the prospects now for the BRI on the African continent? I know that's a, an unfair question because you can't, again, generalize among 50 plus African countries. But but broadly speaking, what was your big takeaway from at least the, the recently concluded forum? Um, I actually wrote about this for this site, so <laughs> plug my own work a little bit yeah. if readers want to go deeper. Uh, but the takeaway of that article, which was also my main point, was that this is an example of China trying to subtly reformulate its approach to Africa. Um, not a wholesale change, but responding to these concerns by reducing the proportion of interest-bearing loans and increasing the proportion of direct foreign aid, um, meaning grants and non-interest-bearing loans. So I think 
you're seeing China realize that this question of debt trap diplomacy um, is its Achilles heel. Uh, and that, you know, it can paint this as a Western conspiracy to mar China's name. But the fact is that local governments are also concerned about it. And you can't really convince them that this is not a problem when they've seen issues um, like the one in Sri Lanka. So China is trying to subtly, again, it's not stopping its investments in Africa and it's not pretending that they're entirely um, non-strategic, but China is saying, okay, we're going to do more to adapt our approach to local conditions. Um, we're going to do more to help industrialization in Africa. We're going to do more to help train people for high-tech jobs in Africa. And we're going to provide more of our funding as non-interest-bearing loans to get around this debt trap issue. Um, the problem with this is it sparked a huge backlash at home in China because Chinese people um, are very sensitive to the fact that their country is still developing, uh, which is something that the government still shouts from the rooftops. China is a developing country and there's still a lot of poverty. And it's optically not a great look for the government to promise Africa $60 billion in funding when people are struggling economically at home. And particularly right now, where a lot of people are concerned about the impact that trade war is going to have on their personal day-to-day -day lives. Mm -hmm. um, so you know, online, a lot of people were criticizing the Chinese government for throwing away money in Africa when it should be spending it at home. And these are going to be tensions that the Chinese government will have to continue to balance. Um, you know, The concerns of its partners abroad and the concerns of the Chinese people at home about overspending. Mm -hmm. So I, I want to take us towards um, wrapping up today's discussion. But before I do that, I did want to sort of shift gears a little bit and talk about something um, that's been in the news recently, which is China's relationship with Russia. Uh, obviously, Chinese President Xi Jinping was in Russia this week at the Eastern uh, Economic Forum where he had a uh, bilateral meeting with Putin. The two of them actually cooked Russian pancakes bleeding together, and there were some pretty fantastic images of that. She does not really enjoy this kind of diplomatic charade, and it really shows in the pictures that they put out there. He just looks a little bored making pancakes with Putin. But hey, it's got it's what you got to do for um, the, uh, the geopolitical future of your country. Um, so... You know, Shannon, it's really interesting that you were just talking about how China is a developing country because in Russia, she ends up touting that, you know, China has always been and is always um, and is still a participant in development projects in the eastern part of Russia. And, you know, we've seen this before. Um, last year, the BRI featured in the Putin-Xi summit. Um, and here it is again. Um, and of course, the subtext here is also that China, the People's Liberation Army became the largest non-former Soviet Union armed force to participate in a Russian exercise, and not just any exercise, but the Vostok 2018 exercise, which is the largest uh, Russian military exercise since 1981. Um, so there's obviously a, a lot of optics around that, and again, a lot of debate around this issue of, well, are China and Russia really allied material, or are they partners, or are they really uh, competitors uh, who just happen to be next to each other and find common interest in opposing the United States, which obviously is a shared interest for them. They do both have interests in rolling back U.S. influence on the world stage. Um, but yeah, looking at the latest round of Xi-Putin summitry, um, what really struck you? Um, one of the things that struck me was that Xi Jinping had never been to the Eastern Economic Forum before. 
which is interesting because, as you mentioned, China and Russia are always talking about economic cooperation and Chinese investments in Russia. But honestly, China doesn't seem all that interested in doing that. Um, energy is a bit of an exception. Obviously, China is eagerly pursuing energy projects in Russia as it is around the world. But even that, the enthusiasm has markedly dropped off in recent years. Um, Nick Trickett does a lot of amazing work on this particular topic of Sino-Russian energy cooperation for us. So I would encourage readers to to Google him um, and find find out more of the specifics on that. But it's a sign that China is not all that interested in investing in Russia, particularly in far eastern Russia, that Xi Jinping had never bothered to make the less than three hour flight to Vladivostok for this annual forum that's kind of one of Putin's pet projects. Whereas Shinzo Abe attends pretty much every year, South Korea's presidents tend to attend, although um, this year Moon's a little busy with the upcoming Kim Jong-un summit. But it, it was it, it's always been surprising to me that she hadn't bothered to make the trip and that he's going now, I think, suggests that China and Russia are really ready to take the relationship to an even higher level than it has been before. And um, the obvious driving force behind that is the United States, uh, the trade war that's mm -hmm. going on between the U.S. and China and you know, continuing bad blood between the U.S. and Russia on a number of issues, most famously uh, the question of Russian interference in the U.S. democratic system. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that is a testament to the fact that this antagonism with the United States is the driving factor of Sino-Russian cooperation, much as back in the 1970s, 1980s, the single driving factor between US-China cooperation was the Soviet Union. Um, so two points here. One, that doesn't mean that this cooperation is not real and it's not something to worry about. Um, the Soviet Union absolutely had to face up to the reality of the U.S.-China rapprochement. Um, and yet that was not a lasting bond, as we have seen. The geopolitical situation changed, the Soviet Union fell apart, and today uh, China is considered a strategic rival, a strategic competitor to the United States. So yes, I think it's entirely likely um, and probable that eventually China and Russia's relationship will diverge. Um, their biggest common interest right now is opposing the United States. And if you take that away, I think conflict is bound to arise. But we're talking the scale of decades, uh, right? So that doesn't mean this isn't something that the United States can ignore. Um, and that's a point that Bob Sutter made in a piece we just published today that's based on a very detailed report he did for the uh, NBR, National Bureau of Asia Research. Um, so readers who are interested more in the implications for the United States can definitely check that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. And I actually think our um, our Austrian colleague and defense editor, uh, Franz Gotti, had a nice way of putting it on Twitter. He compared the China-Russia relationship to the uh, early 20th century relationship between a rising Germany and a declining Austro-Hungarian empire. Uh, in the sense that you have a declining revisionist power, Russia in this case, and on the other side, a very much rising and ascendant uh, revisionist power. Uh, and it's sort of a marriage of convenience um, between the two of them right now. Um, and I think that's that's quite an apt way of looking at that. Um, well, Shannon, thanks a lot for uh, joining me today to discuss the Belt and Road and the China-Russia relationship. 
yeah, we covered almost as much ground as the Belt and Road does. <laughs> well, yeah, I think I think um, maybe we fell a little short there, given that the Belt and Road <laughs> is going to be a universal initiative at this at this point. I'm uh, I'm looking forward to the the Silk Road to the Moon um, at, at at some point. Uh, you know, when we get that manned Chinese space mission. Um, but no, really, thank you. Always appreciate having your uh, insight on the podcast when we talk China. Um, so for, uh, listeners, uh, if you like what you heard on the podcast and you're not yet a subscriber, make sure you hit that subscribe button on either iTunes, Google play, or your other podcast provider of choice. And in the meantime, if you have been a subscriber, but you haven't left us a review, please do so. We recently crossed a hundred reviews, which is great, but we want to hit 200 now and 300. So definitely looking for more reviews there. And, uh, just to note, um, I'll be traveling next week, uh, in Japan. So the podcast will be on hiatus for a week, but we'll be back after that with a lot more. So thanks a lot for listening.